This episode of Trek Geeks is brought to you exclusively by Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection, officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Shenzhou for only $9.95 with free shipping. For additional information on this incredible collection, please visit eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. Hi, this is Kipley Brown, Lieutenant Barbara Smith on Star Trek Continues, course plotted for the biggest little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant. It's the Trek Geeks Podcast with Dan Davidson and Bill Smith. Fleet Command and a special offshoot timeline of the Prime Timeline. It's the biggest little show this side of the Alpha Quadrant. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trek Geeks, your independent Star Trek podcast. I am your co-host, Bill Smith. We're excited to be here. This is episode number 140. Wow. I'm still amazed every time I announce that number, then it's more than one. So uh, (laughs) I know, right? And uh, that voice you hear laughing in the background is the the lovely and talented Dan Davidson, my co-host on on this endeavor. Dan, welcome aboard, buddy. We're going to talk about a fun one tonight. Wow. Last week was Say Something Nice, and that was a great introduction, buddy. I appreciate it. It's kind of carried over. You're feeling the love, I think. Oh, wait. By the way, you're on vacation right now, so I hate you. Tell us what the episode is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. today we're going to talk about uh, Star Trek stuff. Yeah, actually, we're very excited about today's discussion. Um, we were so psyched when we heard that a new movie was going to be coming out. It was sometime in 2008 that we got the information. And in 2009, Star Trek was rebooted on the big screen. And we're going to talk about that at length today about that movie because it's pretty awesome. And I'm excited. Very excited. I'm getting the sense that you could be excited. Am I wrong about this? I'm very excited. (laughs) Well, you know, the other thing you should be excited about is to tell folks how they can relay their excitement to us. Dan, how can people get in touch with the Trek Geeks podcast? The Trek Geeks podcast is so easy to get in touch with, Bill. I mean, it's just it's just just a couple clicks of your mouse button and you're going to be all set. Head right on over to trekgeeks.com slash contact. And there you're going to find a whole bunch of ways that you can get in touch with us. You can leave us a voicemail. You can Skype chat us live live from Trek Geeks Skype chat and you can even fill out the contact form and leave us a message about anything that may be on your Star Trek mind but please don't forget you can also click that big blue button on the right side of the website and leave us a voice message using SpeakPipe my idea of perfection is to get this contact thing out of the way without a mistake once in my life and I don't think it's ever going to happen so for those who want to make fun of the way that I do the contact and always screw up you can head right on over to our official Facebook group Camp Kittimer Uh, you can talk about Star Trek you can post pictures you can have 
polls, whatever you want. You're going to see great Friday commute celebrations where Bill and I do our weekly lip sync on the way home from work. And you're going to get early access to the Trek Geeks podcast just for being a member. So head right on over to Facebook.com slash groups slash Camp Kittimer. Heather, Jackie, or Dan will let you right in to join in on all the fun. And we can't wait to see you there. But please remember that any comments or messages that you leave us in any of the places mentioned therefore after before may be used in a future episode. Bill? Well, I actually understood all of that. I think it's because I've I've known you for 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> I do good, yes. <laughs> Thank you. A nice job, Dan. Go get a cookie. <laughs> cookie. Um, um. Before we talk about Star Trek 2009, we want to take a few minutes to tell everyone about the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection from our friends at Eagle Moss Collections. Yeah, these uh, these starships are officially authorized by CBS Studios, and they feature brand new ship concepts and designs from the first season of CBS's Star Trek Discovery. Each ship has gone through extensive reference study, Bill, and it's been reproduced under the supervision of Star Trek expert Ben Robinson for accuracy and detail, and they are detailed and they are accurate, that is for sure. Now, the first thing you're going to notice when you receive your first ship which is going to be the USS Shenzhou NCC-1227, is that it's big. It's great size. It's almost eight inches from the front of the saucer to the rear of the warp nacelles. It is so detailed The you know, it, I can't even describe It's so cool. They're made of die-cast metal and ABS materials. They're hand-painted, hand-painted models that you're going to be holding in your hand, and that hand-painting is done with reference to the actual CG models that are used in production. Can I just say right off the top of my head that Ben Robinson has one of the coolest jobs in all of Star Trekdom? I mean, because these models are gorgeous, you know, and and not just the models, Dan. Each of these ships comes with that infamous Eagle Moss display base, which I just love, and and the collector's magazine. I mean, you and I could go on at length about these collector's magazines. They have behind-the-scenes info. They've got original design sketches from the ship designers. They've even got a breakdown of the in-universe technology on board, and I just I geek out over these things completely. Now, the first ship in the collection, the USS Shenzhou NCC-1227, is available to subscribers and and this is unbelievable to me for only $9.95 with free shipping if you can believe that and you can get that in your hands by going to eaglemoss.com/discoverystarships speaking of in my hands bill right yes. now i am holding the uss discovery in my hand right now this- that makes two of us <laughs> that's awesome it is so dude you're looking at it right now it is so great. I actually can see the saucer spinning and it spore jumping somewhere right now, just out of my hand. Boom, gone. It's <laughs> the detail's amazing. It's so this starship is pretty sexy. It's I, I'm not gonna lie, it's really nice. But in addition to that USS Discovery, you're also gonna get ships like the USS Kerala, NCC 1255, and you're gonna get the reimagined Klingon Bird of Prey. And if I knew how to speak Klingon, I might even say what the name of the ship is, but I don't, so I won't. But the other cool thing is you're gonna get ships monthly at an exclusive 20% discount off the standard retail price. And Bill, 
they're also going to come with free shipping. You are saving tons of money by being a subscriber. You're going to get free gifts worth over $100, which is also cool. And you can cancel your subscription at any time, but you're not going to want to do that. So for full details, head right on over to eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. You know, going back to the discovery for a second, you know, you don't really get a, a sense of how sleek this ship is until you're holding this Eagle Moss model in your hands because it's gorgeous. And then you get a sense for how long those warp nacelles are because my word, they are gorgeous. I love this discovery model. I love that even on the deflector, there's a little like a like a radar part that extends from the dish, kind of like it does on the original Enterprise, which you don't really notice in the show. It's uh, This thing is just beautiful. And of course, now fans who want to purchase their favorite ships, whether it's the Discovery or the Shenzhou or maybe some of the others, you want to do that individually, you can certainly do so either online at shop.eaglemoss.com or you can actually do it at your local comic book shop for the regular price. But don't forget to subscribe. That's eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. And we truly thank Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection for sponsoring this week's episode. Dan, it's hard to believe that 10 years ago, Star Trek 2009 was being filmed. (laughs) It was before the cameras, and we were waiting with eager anticipation for this movie to come out. And that is just mind-blowing if you think about it. It is. We're old, dude. I just got to say that right up front. (laughs) Old 10 years and... Oh, I, I just think, of what were we doing 10 years ago? I can't even remember because I'm old. So, yeah, um, I do remember that when this was filming, you and I would be searching frantically for news on the movie, on any Star Trek site to see what, if any pictures were being released or details or or before they started filming the cast announcements. Uh, it was Oh, the age of the internet was upon us really for the first time for Star Trek. Um, and it was, it was great to be getting these new pieces of information as they were coming in. But yeah, 10 years, that's, that's a long time ago. It really is. And you know, you, you bring up a, a really great point. I mean, I can remember sitting in front of my computer, you know, in my house, looking at sites like Trek movie and the former Trek web, which was a go-to resource for yeah. a long time back in the day. And and a lot of other sites just trying to get the, the the tiniest tidbit of information. And I remember some of my initial reactions. I mean, because it seems like these, these events came out in waves. And the first one was finding out that they were going back to tell stories about Kirk and Spock. And I don't know about you, but I remember being annoyed. <sighs> yeah, I don't remember my initial reaction with the Kirk and Spock, but I was more... Oh, yes, I do remember it. I was... When we first heard there was going to be Kirk and Spock, I was like, um, they are like old. But we just talked about how old we are. And okay, we've we've had all of these movies, the six movies with the original cast. Now we're going to go back to them again. How is this going to work? But then they switched it up a little bit, I guess you could say. No, they did. I mean, I, I can clearly remember when they announced that it was going to be, you know, essentially a retelling of sorts. I'm like, so wait a second, you're going to cast new people as Kirk yeah. and Spock? How the hell is that going to work? And then they made started to make some of the casting announcements. I mean, I don't know about you, but when they announced Zachary Quinto as Spock, because at the time he was uh, on the TV series Heroes, mm-hmm. and uh, he was Siler on Heroes and doing a fantastic job. I remember thinking to myself, well, yeah, that's really the only person I think who could carry off Spock. And I thought it was brilliant casting. 
Yeah, I thought it was as well. The one that I I liked because I gotta I gotta admit I gotta tell a little short story here. My sister loves this actor to death, um, and so when I found out that Chris Pine was going to be playing Captain Kirk, I immediately texted her about it. And of course, I got the oh my god, oh my god, yeah, it's, at least Alex Rebecca's not going to be in it. I don't know that kind of thing. <laughs> it was it, I was excited to see a lot of the Simon Pegg. I was very excited to and Carl Urban, of course, from uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, fame or so he's done so much but as the name started dropping i'm like these are big names these are hollywood names is it going to be and and i had a little bit of trepidation is it going to be egocentric central or is it going to be a gelling of the cast and they're going to put out a great product so these announcements as they came out with all the different castings uh was very very exciting for me well, and then I remember, like you said, Carl Urban, and I was like, wow, Carl Urban's going to play McCoy? And like, I've never heard of Chris Pine. I uh, I don't know who this clown is, but oh. I was I, I was dismayed to hear that Simon Pegg was going to be Scotty. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah. yeah well, because I, I mean, I'm familiar with so much of Simon's work, most of which is comedic. And uh, certainly I'd seen him in the Mission Impossible movies, and he was kind of the comic relief in those to some extent. But I'm like... Eh, I was I was trepidatious. I, I decided to reserve judgment. But then Zoe Saldana as Uhura, I'm like, that's perfect. And like Anton Yelchin as Chekhov. Oh, I yeah. mean, they nailed that square away. I mean, Anton was so great, even with a lot of the things he did as a kid, whether it was, you know, the episode of ER, he was on the Showtime series Huff for several years. Um, and I, I just I thought the casting once they make, kept making regular announcements was pretty exciting. And then they announced that film producer or uh, sorry, sorry, television producer and, uh, and film producer JJ Abrams was going to direct. And I was like, wow. Yeah. That, really? Yeah. That was really exciting for me because as you know, one of my all time favorite series, if not my favorite series ever is lost, which he had a uh, very big part of um, the show Alcatraz, which I really liked, which unfortunately only lasted one season uh, was something that JJ uh, had done or will be doing. I just remember I was very excited with JJ being announced. Another one that I had just recently seen was um, Cloverfield, which I believe was JJ's. And um, I, a lot of people have issues with that movie. I really thought it was, it was uh, groundbreaking and I thought it was really exciting to watch. So I was thrilled to hear that JJ was going to be the director of this. Well, it said to me that, that Paramount was taking this seriously because JJ was a very hot commodity in Hollywood at the time. I'm sure he could have done any one of a number of things other than Star Trek had he chosen to. And he decided to take this on and he assembled a, a team that that knew Star Trek to some extent. I mean, they, they were often referred to as the Supreme Court, you know, in, in trying to make the movie fit Star Trek. But ultimately, I think the the news that smacked us all in the face and, and made us sit up and take notice was the casting of Leonard Nimoy as Prime Spock. And I'm not going to lie, I got a tear in my eye when they announced that. It was so exciting to hear that. Um, I also remember being very confused because we already knew that Zachary was going to play Spock and now Leonard was going to be in playing Spock. So that started the whole time travel discussion and how are they going to do this and what are they doing and are other old uh, other TOS cast members going to be involved like Shatner or Nichelle or or um, Walter so it it's it raised questions but at the same time Spock was going to be back on the big screen and that first teaser trailer 
that came out with the Enterprise um, being built. Oh, it was just so exciting. What an exciting time it was for Star Trek fans back then. I agree with you. You know, when they when they announced that that Leonard would be there to play Spock, I it made sense that the torch had to be handed off somehow. Because Star Trek without Leonard just didn't seem quite right yeah. at the time. You know, at, at, at that time, I mean, there's no series on television. Enterprise had gone off the year several years before. They announced this movie and fandom was a buzz. Um, of course, because, you know, social media, you know, was in full swing even 10 years ago. The naysayers started almost automatically. Oh, but yeah. the people who wanted to sit back and wait and see what this thing was about, knowing that Leonard Nimoy was involved and Leonard's not going to get involved if he doesn't like the story. Mm-hmm. We know that about him for a fact. Yep. It gave us something to look forward to. It's like, well, hey, if Nimoy can be on board, then I can give this a shot. And that's re- exactly how I approached it at that point. I like that you brought that up. Did J.J. Abrams do Fringe? I can't remember if he was involved with that one. Yeah, J.J. was the executive producer. Okay. And then uh, Orsi and Kurtzman okay. were uh, were also involved with okay. that. I bring that up because um, Leonard Nimoy did Fringe. And yes. initially, he was only going to do uh, uh, one or two episodes. But you nailed, you just nailed it. Unless he thinks it's a good project, he's not going to do it. And he went on to do several episodes of Fringe and was fantastic in it. And having him sign on for this, you knew it was going to be something special. Absolutely. Well, and Leonard only, only did Fringe because of the experience he had working with JJ on, yeah. on this, yeah. right? Yep. So his his ability to play William Bell was fantastic. And you have to wonder what was going through Lance Reddick's mind because Lance Reddick is a huge Star Trek fan to get the chance to work with Leonard Nimoy. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I still want to see Lance in a Starfleet uniform someday. I'm not going to lie. I do, too. Uh. I do, too. So then, you know, nine years ago this past weekend – the movie premiered and I went to the earliest showing. At the time I was actually looking for a job. I was out of work. So I was going to daily matinees of this movie simply because I could. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the first time I saw it, it struck me immediately as being like nothing we have ever seen before in any way. Is that fair? It's very fair. I actually saw this and when we went to see it. I don't remember if it was opening night because I'm not an opening night movie kind of guy because it's it's too crowded and busy and loud. But we saw it in IMAX. Took my wife and kids to see it. And uh, I was blown away. It, and you're right. It was unlike anything we have ever seen in Star Trek before. And for me, that was in the most positive of ways. The, the vision and the special effects and what we were seeing on screen was amazing. I just remember being so excited that first night when the, when the opening scene took place. You know, I have to say that the decision to split this cast off into a separate parallel timeline, although some people call it a technicality, I have to say is pretty brilliant. At the time, I was like, oh... Okay, because everything that happened in the original series still happened. It's not a reboot, really. It's a it's a forking of the t- of the timeline and the cast that we know. They came together in a different way. They go on a mission in a different way, but ultimately they're going to have some of these same experiences and maybe even some different ones, like we see in these films. And I thought it was a creative way to pay homage to what came before. And I still really like that decision. I do too. It's one of the things that I know a lot of people are split down the middle on whether they think it's a good idea or a bad idea. I have always been of the opinion that it was a great idea because it lets you keep all of the things that happened in Star Trek up to this point. As you just said, it really happened. It is history, quote unquote, but 
having this timeline skew and I'm not going to do my Christopher Lloyd impersonation from Back to the Future, even though I really want to. When this new timeline started, it opened up infinite possibilities for new stories and new adventures still being able to keep that quote unquote prime universe intact. I thought it was brilliant thinking on the part of whoever made that decision. Well, and you could even tell versions of some of the same stories if you wanted to. I know the comics address a lot of those. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I thought it was a creative way to accomplish some of that. So the movie begins with the incursion of the Narada into the past, which is what essentially creates the forking of the Kelvin timeline. And I have to say that those first 12 minutes of Star Trek 2009 are, are probably some of the best scenes in all of the Star Trek movies, because it in itself is its own little mini movie, you know, with Kirk's birth and the destruction of the Kelvin and, you know, the the sacrifice of George Kirk and the despair of Winona Kirk. I mean, there's a whole lot going on here. I mean, the murder of Captain Robau, who looks like he could have been a great character. Awesome. Had they explored him more. I love Ferranta here. He is, he's a fantastic actor, but that first 12 minutes is gut wrenching. And when I saw this opening night, I found myself in tears at the end of that 12-minute prologue. It was uh, – we talked about a second ago how how we felt when we first saw it. Now, I got to say, um, recently on Trek Ranks, you and I were, were, were special guests with Jim Morehouse, who we talked to last week. And we did an episode of the five most epic battles in Star Trek, and one of the ones that I chose – was the opening scene of Star Trek 2009. It's amazing. I'll tell you what, I can remember being so excited. I was I was holding my wife's wrist and I was squeezing it so hard because I was so excited with that opening scene with the the camera angles where everything's upside down and turning and this, that, and the other thing. And of course, the lens flare, which I always liked. Um, that scene set the tone for what we were going to see in this movie. And it was amazing. And you, you said it, all the things going on, there's a lot going on in that first 12 minutes. Um, it, it was just, it was just amazing. I was so excited. I didn't tear up at the end of that scene. I teared up when the Delta showed and they, uh, right after that scene and Star Trek was flashed across the screen. That's when I teared up the first time. That's funny you mentioned lens flare. At the time, I saw this in 2009 and in some of the years since, I didn't have a problem with it. Rewatching it to talk about it today, it really is way too much. You know, there are some scenes where it occurs and there's just absolutely no need for it. And it is distracting as far as the action in the scene. Now, I get that JJ has since apologized for how much lens flare was in that movie. And in hindsight, I'm kind of glad he did because it really is overkill. See, it's that's funny. I, I've, I've seen the movie so many times and I watched it yesterday in preparation for today's discussion. And I noticed it and, and I'm like, oh, more lens flare. More, it doesn't bother me. I, you know, maybe it's just because I've seen it so many times and it's, it's part of the movie. And it, it's not something that is distracting to me at all. I, I kind of smile a little bit about it when it happens. Oh, that's OK, though. If it happened about 25 percent less, I think it would be about perfect. <laughs> but. You know, there are times where you know, you're trying to see a character's reaction. And you keep getting his lens flare straight in the camera. And it's like, come on, man, lay off. There's a moment happening here, for God's sakes, JJ. It's um, funny. I don't want to give anything away, but our, when we were uh, we were down in uh, uh, in Georgia when we were uh, recording or we were watching Vic and the crew make the uh, uh, episode of Star Trek Continues, wasn't there a part where they were doing a little outtake and somebody shined a flashlight and, on a piece of glass to make some <laughs> lens flare? So we never saw it, but it was kind of cool. 
Yeah, it was funny. Um, one of the other things I truly appreciate about this from the get-go of the film, like within that first 12 minutes, is the score by Michael Giacchino. I um, I love the score of this film, and it is some of the best music in Star Trek. I've listened to this soundtrack album more times than I can count, and it really does prepare you for the breakneck pace that the rest of this movie has. It does. I love the score. To me, I think when I'm looking at all the scores for all the movies, I think I know this is my favorite score of, of all the, well, maybe not because of Star Trek, the first one, because that's so iconic, but he does a brilliant job in this. And the other thing that I like is I talked about it a second ago. Lost is one of my favorite series. There's a lot of lost in this. Of course he did the music for lost, but especially in that opening first 12 minutes when George is, is setting um, the Kelvin on a collision course, there's some really, um, heartbreaking music playing and it's got a lot of lost in it and it's something that really pulls you in if you're a lost fan especially his music is fantastic and it has become the theme for star trek in a lot of ways i think i agree with that you know the other thing that that he does really well in addition to having some of that music that he's known for you know like a like the music cues from lost but there are variations on music cues from the original series that he uses in this film that are fantastic. Like whenever you see the Narada come on the screen, you know, it's, it, you get that sense of foreboding and that there's an evil guy. And I, I, it's brilliant the way he reuses it. And then I'm going to jump forward a little bit and then we can keep, go back to the plot of the movie. But over the end credits, when his theme intermixes with Sandy Courage's original Star Trek theme, yeah. it is is the best treatment that theme has ever had. It's the first time it's been on the big screen in that way. And it was luscious. That's the best word I can come up with. It's to the point where it just, it warms my heart that that theme finally got that kind of treatment on the big screen because it never got it in Star Trek, the motion picture. You're right. It, you're absolutely right. And what I also liked about the end credits is with that music playing those amazing um, splash screens of different planets and, and, and stuff in space. I thought it, I thought it melded together perfectly and it was beautiful. I can't say enough about Michael's work in this, in this and the, and the other Star Trek films that he's done. It's fantastic music. So going back to the movie itself, one of the things that really struck me was the dynamic, the dynamic of Spock's childhood. And there are elements of this taken straight from Star Trek, the animated series, especially with the other kids taunting Spock at the Vulcan learning center. Mm -hmm. And it created a, a scene that I thought worked incredibly well in demonstrating how Spock had a hard time controlling those human parts of his emotions, even at an early age. And I thought that it set it up pretty well for later in the movie. I think it did, too. One of the things that I always have found interesting about that scene is they're on Vulcan. And yes, Vulcans have emotion, but it seemed to me that the other kids didn't have any problems showing emotion because they were taunting him the way that they were. Um, I wouldn't think that that's normal Vulcan behavior, but again, they're kids and they're young, so they don't control their emotions as much. But you certainly see the difference between all Vulcan and half Vulcan, half human when Spock decides to go take that guy's face right off with his fists. It's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> well and there's a great scene with Sarek after that whole fight where at the end of the hallway on the bench and and Sarek says you know our emotions run deep you know and, and that's really kind of the first admission you know that we get of that kind between Sarek and Spock and and uh, and Ben Cross is just wonderful in, in this movie oh man I'll tell you I wanted to make a special note about 
Ben's performance as Eric. He is so great in this movie as Eric. I love what he does with the character. We don't get to see a lot of of Mark Leonard Sarek to the extent that we really get to know him more when he's in the original series and, and TNG. But I'll tell you what, Ben Cross was a great pick uh, for this movie. Um, I say as much as I love James Frain as Sarek in discovery, I got to put Ben Cross a little higher than him in in his portrayal of, of Spock's dad. I thought he was brilliant in this, even with the short amount of scenes that he has, they're powerful scenes and they really bring out the Sarek character. Yeah, we definitely get the sense of uh, of Sarek as a father when Spock was younger. I mean, obviously, we know that Spock's decision to go to the Academy didn't set well with him. And I think that we get better um, reaction on that from James Frain's Sarek because we get the opportunity to actually see the quandary, right? right. So, uh, but yeah, no, it's just wonderful. And then, you know, the other piece of casting I really loved in this movie was Bruce Greenwood as Chris Pike. Because when I think of people who could play him the way Jeff Hunter did, Bruce Greenwood really knocked that out of the park. I've always liked Bruce Greenwood. You know, he's got this this certain demeanor about him, and it really was spot on for this character. He was great. I, I love how he became the father figure for Kirk in this and in in, in the next movie. Uh, he pulls it off great. One of the things that I love the most about Bruce Greenwood in in this role is those sideburns. I mean, he's got the side the Starfleet sideburns going like nobody's business. Um, and that for you know the first time that we see him in the bar, it, it just it he he pulls off the character of Pike so well and really says what he needs to say to Kirk to get him to, to enlist in Starfleet. And, and it's, it's really too bad not to spoil or alert or give anything away. It's really too bad that we didn't get to see him more than we did in these, in the first two movies. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a number of years since then. I don't know if we need to spoiler. <laughs> I mean, it's been out there. It's not like it came out last weekend. Uh, true. Uh, you know, th- but there's a lot that occurs here. Um, going to Kirk's abandonment on Delta, on what is called Delta Vega. Yeah. And uh, it's a, p- perhaps a poorly named planet, but I get that they're trying to come up with some fan service here and there. But there are a number of things that happen there. In addition to the, you know, the, the creature porn that I like to call it, <laughs> um, we meet both Scotty and Prime Spock. And don't, hey, don't forget about Oyster Face. You mean cancer? <laughs> well, I was talking about characters we're familiar with. Oh, I see. I see. And it's a great introduction to, to Scotty. Although we get tribbles a little too early. I'm just going to come out right there and say that. But the, the mind meld scene between Kirk and Prime Spock is, I thought, is handled extremely well. Uh, one of the things I like most about that scene is the voice echo. It's not just echo. It's kind of like stretched out in some places and and sped up in other places. It really is well done, and the visuals are fantastic. Um, one of the things that I also like about the introduction of Scotty, and I agree, Tribble's a little early, but I do love the Enterprise reference that he puts out there with Admiral Archer's prized beagle. I thought that was, that was genius to tie it all together. Um, I, I will say one of the things that I did not like about that is you you brought it you just brought up the creature porn as you called it that was a little much um, I'm kind of of the opinion that there's no way that uh, Kirk would have gotten away from the big red dude um, and the and the way that um, he always was just one step ahead of this gigantic monster but you know it's the movie it's it's got to be done but the the introduction of Spock Prime Spock in this scene 
is one of the things that I like most, not because of, of, oh my God, we're seeing prime Spock, but the way that in this scene and in the rest of the movie, they're able to bring humor into the movie in a way that works. And Pike's reaction to prime Spock saying that I am Spock is, is a great moment in this movie. You mean Kirk's reaction, right? Uh, Kirk, what did I say? Pike? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Kirk's reaction. Yep. You know, it's, it's, it's in character. It's, it works brilliantly. You know, it, um, it gives Leonard Nimoy a chance to reintroduce us to the Spock we know and love in this context. And even though the movie is so markedly different from the original series, it works. It works amazingly well, but it works because it's Leonard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when right. he, we have that reveal where he, you know, undoes his, his, the hood on his jacket and you see him, it's like, whoa, it's, it's Spock. It's really him. And uh, it, it, it tells you the rest of the movie is going to be all right. You know, it tells you the rest of the movie is going to be something you recognize for mm-hmm. sure. And I think that he just, he plays it like everything else he did just so amazingly well. I've said it in the past on Trek Geeks that sometimes when we saw Spock older, whether it be in the Star Trek six or five, or even in TNG, the, the makeup, the ears, something was off about it, that it didn't remind me of the TOS Spock in the way that he looked and did things. They nailed it here because it, 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 it's Spock in this movie. It really is Leonard's old Spock or young Spock's Leonard shines through here as old prime Spock. I think it was done magnificently. And I'll tell you what, as I watched it last uh, yesterday in preparation for today, when they are beaming uh, uh, off the planet and Spock holds up his hand and live long and prosper. That's when I got choked up because that's the symbol uh, of Leonard who of course is no longer with us and it still hurts to this day. It, it definitely does. Um, I, I don't think this movie works as well without Leonard mm-hmm. because I think it needed that touchstone to the TOS that we know and love. I don't think it would have worked as well with Shatner no. or Takei or Koenig or, or even Nichols nearly as well as it did with Leonard because Leonard was the heart and soul of Star Trek. I absolutely agree. And there was talk after the film, you know, I don't think even too long ago from now, not not so much 10 years ago, that there was discussions of whether it was going to be Shatner who was who was brought in to play this role. And it would be, you know, prime prime Kirk instead of prime Spock. And no, I don't think it would have had nearly the effect that it does with Leonard as prime Spock. I agree. Um, One of the other key things in this movie that sort of made me just, you know, drop my my jaw was the destruction of the planet Vulcan. I mean, that definitely sets this particular timeline apart from ours because a key member of the Federation is just obliterated before our very eyes. Um, it, it's a part of the movie that that really makes Star Trek fans sit up and take notice and drop an F-bomb or two because it's got repercussions, big-time repercussions. This was one of those things that you just don't expect. It's like when one of the prime characters in any TV series like Walking Dead or something gets killed and you don't expect it. Times 10. Uh, I Jaw dropping is, is a perfect description. I don't remember what my reaction was because I was in a theater. I probably couldn't say what I wanted to say. But you don't expect something like that to happen. And it did. And you were kind of wondering, how are they going to fix this? And they don't. It's It happens. 
and it was tough. But I will say prior to the destruction, which destruction itself was really cool with the black hole, but that whole scene with the space jump and on the drilling platform was another magnificent piece of special effects work by the team that did this movie. That space jump is one of my favorite parts of the entire film because it's it's done so beautifully. Seeing Vulcan um, from that aspect is something that like with the Kelvin in the opening scene, we've never seen it. And it was, it was really awesome. I loved it. You know, I think the thing I like the most about the destruction of Vulcan is that it puts the Vulcans in a really uncertain place. I mean, Spock says it in his voiceover of the sort of the captain's log after that. It's, you know, he's now a member of an endangered species. And when you put it in those terms, you're like, wow. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, there's only, you know, what, 10, 15, I think I said 12,000 or whatever it was left. And it's like, Wow, I mean, they're they're almost extinct, right? Oh my god, yeah. So it means that every Vulcan matters, and now they have to find a way to to rebuild the Vulcan society, right? And that's uh, that's still kind of mind blowing when you think about it, because the Vulcans are so storied in all of Star Trek, and I, it's even rewatching it yesterday. I'm like, man, that's amazing. I just I don't get it. I had a hard time. I still have a hard time wrapping my head around it. Yeah. Uh, I- it's it's like it's mind blankery or bleepery or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's yeah. What can I say, man? I'm with you. And then there's the whole Kirk versus Nero thing, and this is a scene that kind of works. I don't mind Eric Bana as as Nero. You know, I mean, in most of these movies, the the bad guy, the big bad, whatever you want to call him, is really kind of two dimensional, and Nero is no different. You know, unless we're talking about Khan, um, you know, pretty much all of the villains in a Star Trek film have been um, uh, underwhelming to some extent, mm-hmm. um, especially when you consider the, the Star Trek movie immediately before this by several years, Star Trek Nemesis. Um, Nero is kind of a step up from Shinzon because Shinzon is just not inspiring in any way. So, but I mean, there's a there's a, a halfway decent fight that goes on there in which Kirk is uh, you know, ill matched for. <laughs> I don't. I don't necessarily like the way the fight ends. Um, but I think it's action and drama that carries that part of the movie fairly well. If that makes sense, it does make sense. Uh, I agree with you with um, with Nero and and Eric's portrayal of him. It seems that we've seen it before. He's kind of a I don't want to say mini con because then I'll just start thinking of Austin powers, but um, he's kind of a, a, a reduced version of con. He's this whole thing is bent on revenge because he lost his wife and con lost his wife. And I mean, a little bit more with con, but it's very similar. Um, I agree that that scene works and there are parts of the scene that I don't like also, but for the most part, I think that, that Nero's performance is extremely two dimensional, like you said. Not as it's not anything as bad as Shinzon. Is it's funny that uh, um, Tom Hardy's become such a brilliant actor, but the portrayal of Shinzon was was something that I don't think he'll he he puts up there on the top of his list. Nero's is very similar. It's just it's just two dimensional, and he, he even though it's two dimensional, Eric does a good job of pulling it off, and uh, I can't I can't fault him for it. No, I think that he did incredibly well with what they gave him. I like the look of Nero. I thought it was pretty badass. Yep. Um, I, I'm I'm kind of, you know, we just recently talked about Balance of Terror and, and the first time we actually get to see the Romulans. I wish that we'd sort of had that same sort of reveal and realization 
in this film that we get in Balance of Terror, but we kind of get cheated on that. Yeah. You know, we don't get to to realize that, oh my God, they look just like Vulcans um, because they don't look just like Vulcans. They just have pointed ears. Right. Um, I, it's funny. I, I was going to bring this up a second ago and I forgot to. One of the things I loved about Nero is you can tell he's kind of bat crazy a little bit because the first time that he comes on screen on the enterprise, he's like, hi, Chris, I'm Nero. It's <laughs> the way he does that. I thought was hysterical. <laughs> I, I do get a kick out of that scene. Hello, Christopher. I'm Nero. I ex- half expect him to ask if he had a cup of sugar that he could borrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to skip around the outline a little bit. And uh, we're going to go to what doesn't necessarily work for us in this movie before we talk about ultimately other things that that worked for us really well. So let's get the let's get the negative part out of the way since we're on a positive vein right now. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I've always had a problem with the whole going from cadet to captain in the course of a movie. Um, I, I I think that that's poorly you know orchestrated in this. You know, it would have been better if he had maybe been a junior officer or they'd all been junior officers somewhere in the fleet wound up on the enterprise you know somehow but i think to go from starfleet cadet to captain of the of a brand new starship uh doesn't really work for me i think that it's something that the writers could have done better i agree i mean it's not very uh realistic but at the same time the way that the movie plays out and is done it works okay, but I agree that would never happen if if you know if we were really in Starfleet because you know anybody else on that ship who was a senior officer would be more apt to be to become acting captain. Um, but yeah, I agree with it. Um, you know the big thing that I have a problem with in this movie um, is why does Nero and why does Spock himself blame Spock for what happened to Romulus? They had nothing; to, it was his fault at all. That's something that's always sat bad with me. Especially with Nero and his his vengeance on Spock, Spock didn't do anything wrong. I, I don't I don't get it. Well, that comes from the the countdown prequel comic that was, you know, officially sanctioned by Bad Robot, not necessarily considered canon, but it told in four issues the story of what happens immediately before Star Trek two thousand nine, and so Spock, you know, came up with a and they touch on this in his mind meld with Kirk, but Spock came up with the plan to save Romulus from being destroyed. And it didn't work. And that's why Nero blames Spock. But see, and that's why Spock blames himself. But see, that still doesn't that still doesn't sit well with me because okay, yeah, he had a plan, but it didn't work. But he didn't cause the destruction of the planet, but Nero blames him for that. I just it's just something that's always sat wrong with me. Well, I mean, it's Nero's grief talking, right? You know, um as far as Spock goes, I mean, Spock assumed that his calculations would have been accurate. And I can understand why Spock blames himself, but you know Nero is just Nero's responding uh, through total grief, and he's blaming Spock because Spock is convenient to blame. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean I, I get it. It's just it's just I just don't. I mean, I just, especially Spock. I can I can see Spock being um, emotionally compromised, so to speak, with the destruction of Vulcan and blaming himself for that because he was unable to, you know, help help save Romulus, but I just never looked at it as, as he was to blame for the destruction of Romulus, which is what it sounds like from both him and Nero at times in the movie. That's just me. Okay. No. What else you got? I don't like the Narada, man. I gotta say it. I mean, it, it looks badass when it's coming through that singularity with all those tendrils. It looks like a giant squid, but that ship is just, it's just not right for me. Um, 
it's it's huge and that's a lot of cable that they have to store in some closet somewhere whenever they got to drop that platform because that's just that's a lot of cable that has to be dropped and and I just don't like how, how it looks on the inside with all the different tiered um, walking areas and there's water in places and I know it's a mining vessel but it just is something that never really was realistic for me uh, at, in in any way even though it looks pretty cool. Okay, I got nothing. I I don't like the inside, but I thought that the outside looked looked pretty badass. It seemed like it could be a, you know, a twenty fourth century ship. You know, uh, I get that. I mean, look at I mean the one thing I do like about it, which and you really it gives kind of sends a shiver down your spine is when it first comes through in that opening twelve minutes, and you see the size of the Kelvin as what it's like when it's in front of the Narada. That's pretty creepy and scary because that's a big ship. It just to me was was uh, I don't know the shape of it and how is it going to go to warp with all those tendril thingies and I understand warp bubbles and all that stuff but it's just something that never really always worked for me as much as other parts of the film did. That's fair. Yeah, and um, your last one is probably one I agree with. I'm thinking. Yeah, I don't know how anybody in their right mind, whether they're emotionally compromised or don't like somebody, you don't just send somebody in a escape pod out of a ship and send them to some planet when you don't agree with what he does or if he does something wrong. Hey, Spock, you got something on your ship called um, I don't know a brig? Maybe, maybe you put him in there. Instead, they he shoots him off into some planet to just leave him there. And who knows? What if he died? You know? I don't know. It just, it just, it, that never worked for me. No, I agree with you entirely. That's just something that's never worked for me either. Um, I think I've come up with most of the things that do work for me in this. Um, are there any others that, that we haven't gotten to for as far as you're concerned? Uh, no, I think we've covered all of them. I, I love the um, – I, I do – what really works for me is is – Nero's complete craziness. Um, we see it all through the movie. And then when he's about to get sucked into a black hole, Kirk is, is offering assistance to save him. And he would rather die a thousand deaths than be helped by the Federation and Kirk. It's a great final scene for Nero and really completes his character and bookends it from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie as being a whack job. Um, I, I really, <laughs> I really liked it. Um, what works for me the most in this movie, other than the story, because I love the story, we said it before. The special effects in this movie are second to none. They're beautiful. They're brilliantly done in ways that we've never seen in Star Trek, and it works. And I just love the scenes so much, uh, especially the beginning scene, uh, the scene with uh, the Enterprise coming up off the moon. Uh, and Saturn with the with kind of like the smoke and everything kind of oozing over it as it comes up out of the cloud. Love that. I just think it's beautiful. It's, it's special effects are so good in this movie. Well, and then before we get to the central questions and sort of wrap this up, there are a couple of other miscellaneous connections you wanted to call out. Yeah, as I was watching it yesterday with my wife, we're huge fans of the TV show Grimm. Played for six seasons on NBC. We've watched it a couple of times. It's it's so good. And I was thrilled yesterday watching to see two Grimm connections in Star Trek 2009. One of my favorite characters on Grimm was Sergeant Wu, played by Reggie Lee. And he can be seen uh, as one of the Kobayashi Maru teachers when Kirk is uh, is uh, beating the game, so to speak. I was very excited about that. And earlier in the movie, a very brief cameo, uh, Bob 
Clendenin, who played Xavier on Grimm, and is also people who watch Longmire will remember him as the pizza guy who was also an informant. He can be seen very quickly getting the keys to Kirk's motorcycle as Kirk is getting ready to head off to the academy. So I was really thrilled about those two Grimm connections, Bill. And one connection that you and I know about and love to talk about is the Star Trek Continues connection that can be found here in Star Trek 2009. Uh, well, yeah, although Star Trek Continues comes well after this. Absolutely. We should, we should think yeah. that. Yeah. But obviously, Chris Dewan is in this movie, and I think it's a wonderful nod to his uh, to his dad. Absolutely, yeah. Seeing him, it's funny. My brother-in-law was watching with me last night, and I pointed it out, and he goes, yeah, doesn't have too much to say in this movie, does he? <laughs> no. Because <laughs> he has nothing no, you know to say. What? You know what? James Cawley is also in this movie. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Where? Uh, toward the end, when Spock uh, r- reports aboard and asks to be first officer. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. I'm going to have to check it out. On you the got, bridge. So you got, you got me there. Let's move on to our central questions. Um, there's only a couple this week, and and they have to do more with the construction of this movie than anything else. And Dan, would you show this movie to someone who hasn't seen Star Trek before as an example of Star Trek? Absolutely. 100%. Not even a hesitation. Yes, absolutely. I would. So what you're saying is you're going to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I think I would preface it with, this is not our timeline. I I think that's important to, to, for people to know if they haven't seen Star Trek and we can get into the explaining of that after they see it. But I think it is a Star Trek movie. It's got Star Trek in its heart and it's done in a way that we've never seen before. So I would absolutely show this movie uh, to someone who hasn't seen anything in the franchise in the past. I would, but with caveats, kind of like you say, Um, because, you know, normally we decide, you know, is this a good, you know, representation of what Star Trek is? Um, In this case, it's just fun and it's evocative of Star Trek and it's easily identifiable. So I would, but I would say, look, the TV series is much different, Mm -hmm. but you'll you'll enjoy this. Yeah, it's funny. If you were to say that, um, if you would ask that question to me for something like In a Darkness. It would be an immediate no. I mean, it was it's that different. Um, but for a, it's like you said, it's not the reboot of the franchise, but for a retelling of the franchise, I think it's phenomenal, and it is definitely a must see for someone who hasn't seen Star Trek before. And then the other question is just going from this movie, pretending that the other ones haven't happened yet. So taking this movie just at face value, do these characters seem like they'll grow into the ones we know and love? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, as much as I want to say yes, I don't know if I can say yes. Um, I, if I have to give a yes or no answer with no in the middle, I'd have to say no, as surprising as that may sound. There's some parts, there's some characters that just, I don't know if, if they would eventually work if it was this was the first thing that we've seen with them um you brought up simon Pegg and the work that he's done before and and as much as i love simon Pegg as scotty in this growing into the character that we know and love i'm not sure same thing with ahura and and i gotta say even a little bit with spock um i think the spock thing is because nobody can grow into the leonard character of spock uh if anybody could, maybe it'd be Zachary, but that's one that stands off on itself. But I don't know. What about you? I, I hate to say no, but I, I think I got to lean that way. I'm going to say with the exception of Spock and Uhura, no. Okay. I think Uhura 
Will, and I think we're actually going to get more from Uhura than than we ever got from the writing for the Uhura and Nichelle played. But I think that very much so we'll see that with Spock. I mean, obviously, um, nobody could do what Leonard did. All you can hope to do is treat Spock in a way that is what people hope for with the logic, with the, you know, the, the scientific approach to things. And we know that this Spock is younger and he's still working on that control of his emotions. And I think that he will get there. Um, but I, I, as far as all of the other characters, I, I don't, I can't really say that I have that feeling after watching this movie. Yeah. And and that's not a bad thing. I think one of the things that's good is they're all going to bring their own certain aspect to the character on their own as different actors. And that's not a bad thing. Um, I know that there are people out there who think it is a bad thing because these characters are supposed to be this way. No, they're not. Um, I think that's what's great about actors in Hollywood these days is they can bring their own unique perspective to a character. And I think they do it. And it's not necessarily a bad thing that they're not going to grow into the ones that we love and know. Dan, what else is great? And something we know and love is the music of the band Five Year Mission. They are every bit of music you hear on the Trek Geeks and Discovering Trek podcasts. We love these guys so much and we're so proud of them and their their brand new album, Year Four, which is available now from fiveyearmission.net. Really, we want everyone to just go check it out. Just on Twitter today as we record this, you know, uh, Lower Pylon Rick said, you know what? You guys have been saying, go check out Five Year Mission for for years now i finally did and i do love it i don't know what took me so long nice. so congratulations to rick for discovering the awesomeness that is five-year mission and i just sincerely i thank him for telling us about that because i'm sure there are people out there every day who discover five-year mission and how awesome their tunes are so that's fiveyearmission.net please go download all their music we love them so much and we hope you all become big fans I love them. I remember when you first told me about them and I instantly love them. And I love the fact that we get to hear them every single week here on the podcast because all the music you hear on the show is from our boys at Five Year Mission. So uh, check them out. Lots of albums you can get at their site. And there's special episodes that I always dig up, Bill. I can't believe I'm the only one who ever finds these episodes, but I found another one. And I know oh, you yeah. want to hear about it, don't you? Totally. Okay. Well, you know, I never realized that our favorite drummer was such a ladies man, Bill. You know, I was rewatching the special version of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Ooh. I noticed that one character bore a striking resemblance to him. You know, obviously in his younger days, he must have traveled near and far for the good of the music, and he must have fallen for a Romulan or a Vulcan or somebody with pointed ears because this young officer was the result of that union and love, you know, she quoted rules and regulations and she wore her hair down in the turbo lift and she failed the Kobayashi Maru like a lot. She didn't do too good, but <laughs> she, she is young. She is beautiful. She is talented. She is Lieutenant Savfark and you should check her out in Star Trek II: the wrath of God. Uh, that's just, that's one of the worst ones yet. Uh, I mean, what? Come on. Yeah. Now. No, you heard me. That's one of the worst ones yet. Aren't they all? Uh, some more than others. And this one definitely achieves that goal. So I'm going to try to soldier on here, pretend that never happened, and say, please go to fiveyearmission.net, despite Dan's terrible farcism, and download all their songs. Dan, next week, we're going to take a look at two of our favorite characters from Deep Space Nine as you return from your vacation. And if you think about it, we really can't talk about one 
without also talking about the other. Oh, the, what would it have been like if only one of these characters were on Deep Space Nine, right? You know, as we celebrate the 25th anniversary of Deep Space Nine, we're going to continue along with our special discussions about the show. It's our favorite show. And these are our part of some of these are our favorite characters or two of one of the two. I don't know about you, but I think both of them are pretty good. We're going to talk specifically next week about Odo and Quark. They got a special relationship. They got awesome aspects of their character. Two brilliant actors performing each character. So I can't wait to talk about this one. I've always said Odo is one of my favorite, if not my favorite character in Star Trek. So I'm very excited about this. There may be some Odo impersonations in there. I'm not going to lie. We're just going to find out what happens next week on an all new Trek Geeks, your independent Star Trek podcast. Uh, Looking forward to this one as our DS925 celebration continues this year. And uh, just two fantastic characters and, and some of my favorites in the, in the whole show. So that's next week on Trek Geeks. Dan, for more great Star Trek discussion, we want everyone to check out the Tricorder Transmissions. And they are, of course, online at thetricordertransmissions.com. So many great podcasts. I mean, really. Uh, if you listen to Trek Geeks, if you haven't checked them out yet, we know you're going to love something of what they do because they have something for every Star Trek fan out there. And of course, for all the news on all the Star Treks, yo, please visit our great friends at treknews.net. For now, this has been episode 140 of the Trek Geeks podcast. We do hope you all live long and prosper. Coconut, coconut, coconut. Um, I get the sense you like coconut. Bing bong. Hey, buddy. Good morning. <laughs> how you doing? Good. How you doing? <laughs> I'm very excited. <laughs> Why? Because I only have two working days till vacation. <laughs> oh, when this drops, you'll be on vacation, you jerk. That's right. That's right. But we still have to do outtakes. So for all those people, just pretend that it's uh, uh, two days before I go on vacation. <laughs> yeah, pret- pretend that Dan's on vacation because he will be. Yeah. Yeah. As we record this, there, there, eight, you go. there are 80 days until Star Trek Las Vegas, by the way. That is a wonderful thing. And we were talking earlier before we started recording, and I was talking about the trip this week that, that I'm on now, even though we haven't left yet, but you, you, you get it. And I actually said Vegas instead of Disney. And it was like, oops, it's a good thing my wife didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, when this episode drops, there'll be closer to like 71 days until That's beautiful. The countdown begins. So much to do. <laughs> oh, so much to do. Yeah, I'm not ready yet for Vegas. I, uh, I so, am. Oh, I am and I'm not. I am. You know, speaking of Vegas, you want to hear some great news, bud? Oh, I got some good news. <laughs> okay. We got a closing date on the house. Oh, yeah.
That's right. I'm not kidding. Yep. So, and it's, and the good news, even better news, I wanted it to be before Vegas so that we could get a, some things done before I leave. It's before Vegas, the Friday before we leave for Vegas, but it's still before Vegas. <laughs> so you're going to have like four days or so, five days in the house, maybe tops. Yep. And then yep. you're out of yep. there for five days. Yep. I'm so excited. We'll be able to get start stuff moved in. We drove up yesterday. They got the siding already on the place. It's going up. It's like amazing. I'm so excited. I can't wait to get in there. Well, the nice part is just you'll literally be five minutes around the corner <laughs> for me to pick me up for the airport. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, I'm driving. Um, huh. Well, you got one of us has to go somewhere. I'll pick you up this year. How's that? No, I'm just kidding. But if you do come pick me up, you can see the house. <laughs> I won't see it before that. You'd be lucky if you see it at all. Wow. I see how it's going to be. <laughs> Just for you, I'm getting the hell out of this state. Wow. Wow. I finally get here. You've been dying for me to get back here, and now you're going to leave. Thank you. Well, what is it that uh, that Spock says in a muck time? You may find after a time that having is not the same as wanting to paraphrase. That's no, a good paraphrasing. Yeah. Paraphrasing? Paraphrasing. Oh, let's go with that. That's a new word. But um, yeah, now that you're here, I don't know what I was so excited for. Wow. Well, you're excited because we get to commute every day. Yeah, that's uh, I'm so excited. <laughs> and I just can't hide it. Oh, I see what you did there. Um, so let me ask you a question. Yeah. Because the Friday commute uh, celebration has become extremely popular on Camp Kittimer. It has. Um, people have been begging to drop requests in the feed for things that we should do. What do you think we should do about that? Should we allow it or should we just continue picking our own? Well, I think we should still pick our own to some extent. I mean, there are going to be some of these songs we just don't know. That's true. Absolutely. Yep. Um, and then it becomes rehearsing. And then <laughs> I, have, I have barely enough time to <laughs> to do that. <laughs> yes, I know. So, no, we, I, I absolutely think we can, you know, th- let Camp Kittimer suggest songs that we should do. I've got a few in mind that uh, that won't won't be terrible at all. No, they won't no. be terrible. No. The songs won't be terrible, or the uh, lip sync won't be terrible. Um, to be determined. <laughs> Very good answer. Thank good you. cover up. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Like one of the ones I'm thinking of is uh, "Panama" by Van Halen. I like that. I'm I'm a thumbs up for that one. Yeah. Yeah, and with with some special theatrics. Oh. I, might, I might try to pull one off while you're in Disney. Oh, well, that's okay. But but you'll still mm. make an appearance. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So I just, it's I'm working on it right now. So, all right. Well, thanks for filling me in and keeping me up to date. What's going on? It'll give you. It'll be the best version of you that has ever appeared on anything Trek Geeks. I'll guarantee that oh. much right now. Oh boy, I can't wait to see this. <laughs> all right. All right. Thank thank you for wetting my appetite. <laughs> you're you're welcome. I think. That's the best, like, soundboard sound ever. It's better than the ballpark one. Now batting for the Trek Geeks, 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 Geeks. (laughs) Number zero, zero, zero. First base, Dan, Dan, Dan. Davidson, Davidson, Davidson. At least you got it right. Wait, I'm not done. First base, Davidson. That's how it goes at Fenway Park. Oh, okay. At least you got it right. When I used to play softball for work, when I was at Blue Tarp, I played first base. So at least you got that right. 
Oh, I had no I was idea. not I was not number zero though. Thank you very much. You are to me. I know. I knew you were gonna say that. You ready to do this there, jerk face? Let's do it. I can't wait to talk about this. This is gonna be awesome. Let's do it, do it, do it. Let's do it. <laughs> no, I was going for Star Trek two thousand nine where Kirk screams do it, do it, do it. I know that. I know that. And ejecting the warp cores. Plural, yes, lots of those. Lots, yeah, lots of warp cores. Ejecting the warp cores from the Budweiser plant on Star Trek 2009. <laughs> You're independent, Star Trek. No, not really. No. All right, let's do this. Got it. <laughs> 